This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, it's that time of year, isn't it? Just uh, hearing Jolene Grimes give out the uh, weather there. And uh, snow, ice pellets and rain, a sloppy mix in Labrador over the next uh, 24 hours or so. It has begun. Now, Labrador usually gets it a little earlier than the rest of the province. But be that as it may, to hear that in the forecast sort of just really does give you a chill down your spine (laughs) unless you happen to have a snow machine well um the situation uh, on the trans canada highway bellevue beach still some significant uh, slowdowns in the area traffic is moving but it's moving very slowly so please be aware of that that's a, a following a, a fairly serious crash there involving a number of vehicles near the bellevue beach turnoff so traffic in both directions slow going at this time please show uh, patience and caution in the area Well, 18 of NAEP's 21 bargaining units have accepted the latest agreement put before them, but it's back to the bargaining table for three bargaining units. The collective agreements represent an extraordinary amount of work, just one of the many things the province's largest public sector union is working on at any given time. Well, my guest today on On Target is NAEP President Jerry Earle. Hello. Hello, Linda. Good afternoon. To, good after, Friday afternoon to you and your listening audience. Same to you and the long holiday weekend. You got turkey on the menu? Certainly hope so. That <laughs> is the plan and trying to gather with as many family members like Newfoundlanders Labrador as can and trying to take a, a day or so downtime uh, like so many can. And unfortunately, many workers don't get to do that. Indeed, and uh, be thankful for the, uh, for the, uh, the good in our lives. But it's a busy, busy time. Busy is an understatement. Uh, as you just alluded to in your preamble, the collective bargaining process is one of many things that uh, NAPE does throughout Newfoundland and Labrador for workers and workers outside of a union in our communities. Uh, so it's an, bargaining is probably one of the most challenging things. Most people don't realize what's involved with collective bargaining or the type of bargaining we have to do sometimes. It is probably one of the most challenging things that NAPE or any union has to do at any given time. So for uh, 18 of your 21 bargaining units, the collective bargaining is now done. What, what is typically involved in that process? The process starts uh, months, years back, actually, because what happens is a consultation process takes place with members. Uh, they have a right to go to our locals, which is their workplaces, bring forward issues, and those issues go to what we call a provincial component convention, where everybody at that then debates the collective ideas and comes up with ideas. And they elect negotiating teams of their peers. What most people don't understand is that these are frontline workers themselves that assemble with these negotiating teams and then negotiators, professional negotiators, are assigned with them, and that's who proceeds to bargaining tables. Uh, in this instance, uh, we come up with a centralized bargaining process because we thought it was prudent to try to get collective agreements in place that people knew where they stood uh, after the very difficult time and the difficult times that people are facing. So it's a very complex process. You can only imagine, in NAEP's case, we were bargaining for 21 separate, unique bargaining units. Some are really close 
close and you, uh, and related. You take health care, for example, lab and x-ray, health professionals, hospital support, uh, faculty, for example. So there's related bargaining but then there are some that are not related in any way, shape, or form. So you're trying to balance uh, those efforts at a bargaining table. Sometimes a collective bargaining can be uh, fraught with uh, some difficulties and can be contentious Absolutely. at times. Um, was this a relatively smooth process for those 18 units? No, I would not say smooth. It was a respectful process. I agree with that, the process respectful. Did we have some uh, tense moments at the bargaining table? Uh, was there some very tense conversations at times? That's part of bargaining. Uh, and sometimes it can get pretty heated and challenging because the parties at a bargaining table have certain interests in mind. Obviously, the union's interest is the membership, uh, the frontline workers, and trying to attain collective agreements that are respective of the work they do. Uh, and then trying to ensure appropriate compensation in challenged environments. And obviously the employer is going to come to the table. Uh, in this case, uh, government represents of the 21 bargaining 16, and then Memorial University Marine Institute represented five others, and they have interest that they come to the bargaining table with, uh, things they may want to suggest have removed from a collective agreement or remoted, and then obviously we're looking to enhance or at least maintain and improve the work lives of members. So it's a very challenging process. Uh, anyone that's never sat at a bargaining table is going to be really difficult to appreciate it. Uh, I've been there personally. Uh, I don't collect the bargain right now. Uh, that's what our sign negotiators do, but it's a, an extremely challenging process uh, and one that most often people do not realize the effort and the work that goes into. And sometimes trying to understand the results is really difficult uh, on many people. So most of those uh, agreements have been ratified, but three bargaining units have rejected the proposal. What happens now? What happens now, and I think if I heard an interview correctly, because I use the PVR every piece of news and go back and replay it and sometimes replay it again, I believe I heard the minister say that they're prepared to reach out to us because we have to now try to ask the employer to go back to the bargaining table with those three protector groups because that's where we were with those along with the other 18. Uh, so it seems the minister has indicated that's an option. Uh, if not, then there's other processes outlined in the legislation that we would have to follow through with. But we're not the only ones that bargain with government. We have to realize uh, the registered nurses, QPI, BEW, NLTA, uh, the Canadian Medical, the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, sorry, uh, and many others bargain with the provincial government. So we all have to try to lobby for our turn at the table, uh, pardon the phrase, but that's the way bargaining works. Uh, so we will now try to get a date and time to return to the bargaining tune, because these are, again, three unique units with unique issues uh, that need to take a second look at, uh, see if we can come to some compromise, and if not, then we have to use the legislation and proceed on. Same basic template for all these units, or, or does this simply re re reflect those specific types of workplaces and their, their own unique circumstances? The compensation template is what government has said to us, is the compensation template. Uh, one thing, and I, and again, I, I realize frontline workers, the main thing that affects workers is their pocketbook, basically, and that's quite understandable. Uh, we have, as a union, been lobbying for issues sometimes, in some cases, Linda, for a decade, two decades, and this round of bargaining, some of that success was realized. In some instances, it does not mean monetary compensation, but it does 
improve working conditions. I'll just give you an example. You've heard NAEP and other unions talk about why do we have to continuously go to a doctor for a medical note with a condition that we know exists and is going to continue to exist for the next year, two years. So something that we were successful negotiating, I'll be the first union in the province and one of the first unions or few unions, I should say, in the country is, for example, if, if I have migraine headaches, all I need to do now is produce a medical note that is satisfactory to the employer by me- my medical provider saying there's a likelihood that Jerry Earl uh, experiences migraines and there's going to be a couple of times this, this year that he's going to be off as a result of that. So I don't have to tie up in the emergency department or a family doctor's office because we know they are certainly lacking and many don't. So just just one example of improvements we've made that we have been struggling for, for in that case, that one there for about two decades. Is that right? Absolutely right. Even though it helps streamline the process, I guess because everybody has an understanding now of, you know, some of the um, stresses and strains on the healthcare system. Absolutely, and that was the angle that we always went at it from. Uh, if Jerry or Linda or somebody listening on has a diagnosed medical condition that's going to prevent him from attending work on several occasions during the year, and a doctor, because this is a doctor, is going to confirm that, why do I have to go and wait in the emergency department? Number one, if I got a migraine, that's the last place I need to be to be recovering. So finally, uh, the other side seeing the light on that, and we've concluded that. And things like gender-neutral language, believe it or not, that didn't exist in collective agreements. And it doesn't mean anything from a monetary point of view, but it, it's inclusive language that respects a, a segment of our population. Something that we didn't really deal with, Linda, before the pandemic, for example, working remotely. Uh, now we have language here that talks about how that will play out in the coming months. And the big issue we're hearing across uh, many sectors, specifically healthcare, is retention. And I always say retention recruitment versus recruitment retention because we had to retain workers before we recruit. Uh, we have now a working group set with government to set down and address that very issue, apart from other uh, initiatives that you'll be hearing announced or have been announced and will be announced. So a very key piece to look at, what do we do to improve retention in areas such as healthcare, and then look what we'll do to improve recruitment uh, to help fill the voids. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about healthcare and some of the challenges faced there um, that we've seen augmented, if you will, yes. particularly since uh, COVID-19, uh, when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Nate President Jerry Earle. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And our guest today is Nate President Jerry Earle. And um, uh, Nate just um, came through its collective bargaining process, and you were just outlining that, Jerry. But um, uh, three units have rejected that air services, marine services, and uh, correctional officers. But I see Labrador, laboratory, sorry, and x ray workers just narrowly accepted the deal there. Any special considerations or processes for them? Because obviously that indicates all is not well. So, and what you, a union or any union should do, I know what NAEP does, is to assess the outcome of any ratification, even if 
all the bargaining units successfully passed. We would look at then the bargaining units uh, with voting, and especially in healthcare, because lab and x-ray, hospital support, for example, are two bargaining units. When you look at the percentage of vote, number one, the voter turnout was significantly increased compared to the vast votes that we've been tracking since they've taken office, about a 43 to 53% increase in voting. And then you have to look at like lab and x-ray. Lab and x-ray is a group of workers that unfortunately in Newfoundland and Labrador do not get the recognition that they deserve. Most often when you hear politicians or myself in like media groups talking, uh, it is a group that is not often talked about because they are not seen. Like when you go in to have blood work drawn, uh, the person drawing your blood, if that be a registered nurse or doctor, that goes into our in our laboratory area, and those staff there do incredible work to ensure appropriate diagnosis and assist with treatment. You've seen it during the pandemic. Every test that was done for a while, a short number, we're going to have Newfoundland Labrador, and that was laboratory staff. Uh, they're into parts of healthcare where they're not often seen by the general public. In some cases, they are, because they do... If you go in for a CAT scan, you go in for a chest X-ray, uh, you go in to nuclear medicine, that is all members in lab and X-ray, and they're not often recognized. Uh, even, and I've reminded the Minister of Health, and I've reminded the Premier of this. Healthcare is an inclusive team. And when we talk about healthcare, we should be talking about healthcare workers. There are sometimes we have to talk about specific professions. But this is a team of workers, close to 1,000 across Newfoundland and Labrador, that provide invaluable work. They're extremely frustrated because the workloads they have is unimaginable, especially in the last 30 months, just the same as other workers that's been talked about. Uh, but they, they do not, don't get to do attention. And again, I can understand their frustration uh, that has been shown here and demonstrated. And I've already talked to the Minister of Health about this, that these groups, uh, I'm prepared, if he's prepared, to start looking at uh, what can be done. Uh, they have significant vacancies, for example. We're talking about vacancies in other areas. Well, lab and x-ray has just as many vacancy issues that are critical to your and my treatment and that of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians as we have in other areas. And it has to be addressed. And hopefully an announcement coming soon, that's one bargaining unit that will be actually included in a retention initiative that's going to be announced hopefully in the coming days, if not week or so. Well, you mentioned this retention initiative, and government recently announced this come home incentive for uh, paramedics and LPNs, other healthcare professionals. What do you make of it? That is because there's a whole bunch of things, and we've talked to government, and we've had, i got to say we've had some good dialogue, especially with the current minister. I've uh, got a good relationship and talking to. I liken the issues in healthcare, and, and I worked in healthcare. I worked in five different professions in healthcare. My last being a paramedic, uh, and finally we have a government, and because you can't change the past, what we have been saying for some years, healthcare was in crisis in Newfoundland, Labrador. Then we got swamped by the pandemic, and that actually exacerbated the problem. So we do have a crisis in. Healthcare, and actually, government's acknowledging that now. And I like it when I was a paramedic. You go out to a, an accident scene, and the first thing you do, you'd assess the situation, make a determination. Uh, you would start to treat the immediate things, or, or I should say, stabilize, and then you start a treatment plan, which could be weeks, months, or years. So that's where we are now. We are at a stage now where they're trying to stabilize. Uh, different unions are bringing forward ideas that our frontline workers are bringing to us. And I always say retain 
and recruit rather than recruit and retain because you've got to keep workers in the system. And that's the initiative now, plus then the recruitment just touched on. So we know there's not enough of people graduating at the moment in Newfoundland Labrador to fill vacancies. So there's an initiative the government's taking now to recruit from other parts of the country and outside the country, actually, and to recruit those professionals, licensed practical nurses and paramedics and lab and x-ray personnel. It's costly because trying to convince somebody in BC to move to Newfoundland, that means cylinder home and coming here and buying a new home. If it's a family, it's an expensive venture. So that is what that is for. Like when I worked in healthcare, it was not common. I work with grads from the UK. I work with licensed practical nurses from Jamaica. So it, it's not new. It's taken something that was in the system before. But in order to recruit, you're going to have to come up with some level of compensation because a person moving there, if you're going to convince them to work in Twillingate or in Labrador or in Arbor Britain, you're going to have to convince them to go there. You're going to have to con- help them to buy a residence and set up. So that part is one initiative that I think is necessary uh, to recruit from outside, but not only outside, because what we've talked to the government about is recruiting internally. And what I mean is Newfoundlanders and Laboratorians, because there's people out there that's interested in working healthcare. And as difficult as it is, Linda, I would say it is a rewarding career. I've been there. You talk to healthcare workers. It's not about the work. It's about the volume of the work and the inability to be able to get time away from that work. Is the, um, and, and you just you know alluded to it there, but is the issue just money or, or are there other incentives that would help people stay happy in the jobs that they have now? The issue is not just money, because the, the thing is, there's money in the healthcare system. But can you only imagine what we'd have done if we'd have done what Moya Green suggested about a year ago, to cut 25%? Imagine the chaos. But the issue is, look out, look at the healthcare workers that are there. They can't get a day off. Uh, you might have seen a recent story of a single mom in Labrador being a paramedic, uh, didn't know if she'd be able to get off at 8 o'clock in the evening or sometimes after 24 hours to spend time with her child and being told sometimes at 8 o'clock in the evening, uh, sorry, you got to stay on. Now. I'm not sure we're going to find a child care provider at 8 o'clock in the evening, but that's happening right across Newfoundland Labrador. That's happening near the metro region. That's happening with multiple professions, uh, and I can understand the frustration of licensed practice nurses, PCAs, lab and x-ray, and a whole host of healthcare providers because it's not so much about money. Compensation is not the biggest piece, is that when a person goes to work for 12 hours, they would like to get off after a 12-hour shift rather than work 16, or on their day off when they're trying to get a mental health break, is which what their days off are, being mandated to work. Uh, I was in an emergency department on Monday, and the first person that I bumped into said, Jerry, this is my 14th shift. 14th shift. That, and then you wonder why people, it wasn't about the money. They just wanted a day off. And I want to ask you a little bit more about Emerge and uh, some of the information that's been coming out lately from Eastern Health and other groups uh, when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Nate President Jerry Earle. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. 
guest today on On Target is NAEP President Jerry Earle. And Jerry, just before the break, you mentioned uh, visiting a worker at Emerge who was working on their 14th shift. And all workers are asking for in some of these cases is a day off. Uh, Eastern Health took the extraordinary measure of asking people to stay out of emergency unless an absolute emergency to avoid those long wait times that we've become accustomed to. What are some of the factors involved there? Well, one of the big factors of what we're hearing is people don't have a primary health care provider. Uh, I think there's some good initiatives in the health care talk about setting up these collaborative care clinics where you'll be able to go into a clinic, be a family physician, could be a nurse there, whether a licensed practical nurse or registered nurse, could be a social worker, could be somebody to draw your blood. That would be a great set, but what's happening, that's not in place yet, and we know there's a significant percentage of people that don't have doctors, so they have no choice but rely on the emergency department because I'd suggest one, that day I went along to the emergency department, I won't say 50%, but a significant percent were not presenting with emergencies because that's what an emergency department is or an urgent care center is to deal with emergencies. And it's not a new phenomenon because, like I said, we've always had people that have went to emergencies and there's an education component to be done. But the biggest factor I believe today is uh, not only in the metro area, you your doctors talk about in central Newfoundland, uh, number one, the unavailability of primary care providers, and I believe others can be utilized from advanced care paramedics to nurse practitioners to licensed practical nurses that can provide a level of that care because uh, we got to reimagine the healthcare system. Uh, the system that we have is broken, it has to be repaired, and we cannot fear change. Like some people are really fearful of a change, but our healthcare system was designed when the population was much younger, we had more younger people than seniors years and it's actually flipped now we have an aging population and less younger people so we got to address that uh, and it's it's not an easy fix look there's no political party I don't care who they are can fix this today or tomorrow it's going to take weeks and months but it's got to take a very collaborative approach and utilizing resources and attracting new resources is it purely resources because we hear about the availability of beds and acute care beds in particular where people are admitted and they have nowhere to go they're on a gurney in a hallway somewhere absolutely a big piece of the resources and there's a ripple effect there are patients that are in a number of acute care sites don't have the data i only just recently asked for an update because they should be provided regularly for example in central newfoundland there for a period the spring or early summer there were 70 odd beds tied up by alternative care what that means is people that needed to be admitted to long-term care facilities we had empty long-term care facilities because we did not have staff for those facilities so that could have freed up acute care beds as we speak today that's still happening that's happening at the health science that's happening at st Clair's, uh, james payton western memorial that's happening in goose bay where beds are being tied up by long-term care uh, just because we do not have staff there's empty long-term care units here in metro st john's believe it or not because we do not have staff to staff so it is a resource issue uh, that we have to collectively work on uh, and conquer sooner rather than later. I see that uh, there have been more red alerts in the healthcare system, and I know as a former paramedic, you, uh, this is a, an, an item that is of um, utmost importance to you. Um, any improvements being made there? 
Uh, we're finally, because we have had a lot of conversation with Department of Health and Department of Health, uh, we've had a working group with paramedics in place now. I actually put myself in with that working group because it only only affects the frontline workers. This potentially could affect any Newfoundlander and Labradorian at any given time if they experience a medical or traumatic event. So. What they've done here in the province, rather than use this red alert, and I don't know why they're so fearful of using the term red alert, which is a national standard, we talk about response time reliability. Well, the response time reliability across the entire province is concerning, whether it be Conception Bay North, Conception Bay South, whether it be Goose Bay, uh, whether it be in central Newfoundland and certainly in the metro region. So, well, there may be some, I'm waiting for the data now because they finally uh, came on board with what we were suggesting. We need consistent data from each of the regional health authorities that we could compare, because believe it or not, up to a year ago, uh, some of the regional health authorities were not even gathering the data. So we now, I have sitting right here in front of me actually the data for the last quarter of last year, but I'd like to see the next two quarters to see is there improvement, because the data that I did see uh, two quarters ago is extremely concerning. Not too long ago, a few years now, uh, we had this review of uh, the paramedicine system in Newfoundland and Labrador, and we have this mishmash. Uh, We have um, uh, paramedicine that's run by the health authorities. We have paramedicine that's run by private uh, companies, and we have paramedicine that's volunteer um, or through, uh, you know, community organizations. Um, Is it feasible to have that all in one kind of system, or does the system as it is now work? The system that we have now does, in my opinion, and from data that we have collected, is not working in the best interest of all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Um, It depends on the region of the province that you're in, uh, what type of service you may get or the level of service. So the women and men that work in this system do everything they can on every given day, and they're dedicated to the system. But again, I think one of the things, again, Elfa Cordenell is talking about a system, a centralized, because when you talk about that part of the system, there's the, also the air ambulance side of it. And believe it or not, Linda, the air ambulance does not even come under the Department of Health. It comes under work service and transportation. So uh, we have an air ambulance crew, because that's one of the groups that actually rejected a collective agreement. The pilots that operate the air ambulance are actually in work service and transportation. And then the people that are in the back of the air ambulance are in a total separate government department, uh, which makes no sense, never did. So I think a coordinated, at the very least, public emergency response system would be in the best interest of everybody. Because whether I live in Arbor Breton or I live in Goose Bay or I live in St. John's, I should expect an appropriate level of emergency service uh, when I have a, a life-altering event that happens or a motor vehicle accident that happens. It shouldn't depend on where you live, uh, what type of service responds, but the level of service that responds. And we've seen some sad cases in the past involving air ambulance services. Now, sometimes it's weather-related, but sometimes it's been the availability of, of staff. Again, uh I wish, because we have had a group that we pulled together, made up of, again, I always say listen to the frontline professionals that deliver the services, irregardless. And in this case, we struck a working group made up of air ambulance staff, 
at least two years ago, Linda, that came forward all kinds of recommendations, met with various officials, uh, and today still haven't got a satisfactory result. Some of the things they were recommending would actually save money and would actually increase the, the availability and the response of the air ambulance. There's nothing, unfortunately, we can do in some areas when weather prevents an air ambulance from mobilizing, but when it's an issue of where you place the assets and where you have the air ambulance pilots and the ground crews, that can be fixed, and it's not a substantial cost. And again, we got to put life air ahead of the almighty dollar, because actually, if it's, from what they showed us, uh, and the Secretary of Treasury Nate, led that committee along with a group here because of the significance, uh, it looked like it could save money. But like I said, Lynn, we've been presenting that now, these frontline workers, for about two years. And it appears as though governments can put its hands on money when and if needed. Uh, We only need to look as far as Hurricane Fiona and the $500 announced this week. I want to touch on that a little bit when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Nate President Jerry Earle. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Nate President Jerry Earle. And uh, Jerry, it's hard to believe, but it's been uh, two weeks now since uh, Hurricane Fiona struck the southwest coast. Very many of your members affected? Yeah, there there was. We have members in the southwest area, southwest coast area, some that are actually directly on the front line. We represent the municipal employees, for example, in Port of Bass. Uh, we have student assistants there. We have home care workers there, the college workers there. We represent the day before the storm struck. I reached out to the local president of the municipality, uh, a chap that lives right in Port of Bass, uh, and spoke with him. And then the day after Fiona moved out, I reached back to him again. And to tell you, like Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are renowned for their kindness and their compassion. And I said to this local president, I said, what can we do for you? What can we actually do for you? He said, God, he said, a couple of pizzas wouldn't hurt. Now, this is somebody that had put in unimaginable hours at that point in time. And he said, if you can do something to help our community. Well, I assure you that local and several others out there that were on the front line got their pizzas. And that on behalf of them, all of NAEP members pitched in, and we've already donated some $20,000 to that area. And locals, I just checked with our county department, are actually saying, we want to help now. So we're actually having our locals across Newfoundland Labrador sending in funds. So all I can say to the people at that area is that we're all thinking about them. Uh, they have gone through untold hardship, uh, and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, the vast majority, are pulling together to help out like we always do. So I can't imagine what the people in that area endured and gone through. We've seen the pictures, and we, many of us, I've said, and as you see me post, as we just watch helplessly. But uh, that just gives you an example of the type of workers that are because uh, that municipal worker, when I spoke to him, uh, was about helping his community and what they had just put in for 48 hours the second time I called him was uh, just send us a couple of pizzas. And that's been echoed so many times because that's what workers in Newfoundland lives are doing because I, I had a, rep- a repetition of that in central Newfoundland when the, the forest fires was out there. Uh, we had a provincial board meeting in Gander. I went out early along with Secretary Treasurer just to visit the site and the frontline forest fighters. Uh, there was some unseen, and again, uh, we said thank you for everything you've done. They said they, had, they were working 14 days off to and then working 14 more fighting the fire. And again, we asked them, like, what can we do with you? They said, well, a nice cup of coffee tomorrow morning. So 
we delivered coffee six o'clock in the morning to them. They said, this facility, the Max Sims camp, have been really good to us. Uh, we're used to sleeping in a tent. We actually got a cot while we're fighting the fires here. Can our union do something to help out? Because the fridge had given out the day before. So that same morning at six or seven o'clock in the morning, uh, on behalf of those workers, their union don't, like actually donated $5,000 to Max Sims camp. But that's what those workers, want. They, they want to pay back. Uh, and I've seen that repeatedly in healthcare and schools and every sector. Uh, and it speaks volumes to the members we represent and workers in general in this province. And proof positive, I would imagine, yet again, that it's important to get that feedback to find out exactly what, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, it's not always as simple as, but you know what I'm saying. You yeah. know, you, you try to anticipate people's needs and sometimes it's, yeah, you know what? A couple it, pizzas would be really nice. Yeah, and, and most people... Morale, it's, it's about morale. It, absolutely. They're, they don't ask for big things. Like I said, we touched on this a second ago, it, it's not a big thing to ask for, can I have a day off? In this case, these workers, uh, they were just saying, like a cup of pizzas or a cup of coffee at six o'clock tomorrow morning, I can tell you uh, that's easy things to do. And it's all about morale. It's all about recognizing the contribution of workers, whether they work in lab and x-ray, hospital support, or in their schools, anywhere, because you can't buy recognition. You just got to give that recognition, uh, and you don't understand the issues until you talk to frontline workers or you visit the sites where they are. Uh, that's been really difficult the last 30 months because you're not allowed into facilities and you got to get permissions. That's a big piece that we have missing right now because uh, I keep saying I'm going to get cabin happy soon, but we got to get back out and and talk to frontline workers and understand exactly what their needs are. Uh, and it, again, people think it's all about compensation. You listen to some, but it, it's not all about compensation. It's about recognition and just getting a break. Uh, just just being able to go home to your family uh, sometimes is what workers are asking for. Working or not, we're all feeling the pinch these days, yep. and the provincial government uh, announced $500 in cost-living benefits to some 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians this week. Was, was there a better way to address the cost of living? Uh... I think the government has the best of intentions in trying to do this because Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, workers, people that are unable to work, people in low income are earning. And it may be an effort to try to get out the door without too much red tape. But there's certainly questions that we would ask. Like, I'm not sure if somebody making $100,000 a household with two people making $98,000 uh, needs $1,000 between them when a single mom, because I've seen somebody posted yesterday, a single mom with two kids making $30,000 is going to get 500 when technically a household with $198,000 is going to get 1000 So it may have been an initiative to try to get that money out the door expeditiously without a lot of red tape. Uh, I think things, again, listing to frontline workers could have been done different, uh, and that someone like that mom making $30,000 for two kids should have probably got more, not should have, absolutely should have gotten more than $500 versus somebody making a household with under $98,000. So I think it was the best intentions, and I applaud any government, not just this government. We're seeing it at the federal level and other government, other, other parties suggested, Linda. That's needed right now because people are hurting, uh, and especially those that are disadvantaged, minimum wage earners, people working precarious work, part-time work, are extremely hurting. And I think the initiative was well-intended. Uh, just probably uh, how it was rolled out could have been done a little bit different. 
$200 million, that's nothing to sniff at. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people appreciate the, the little bit of help, but uh, could that $200 million have been used in a different way? And that's what I mean, like, could have been more directed at people that needed it, to people that are truly experiencing hardship. Everybody is deg- experiencing hardship to a varying degree. But like I said, somebody making $98,000 and two people in a household, maybe somebody making 98 and the other person making 50, they're still making 140 thousand between them. Do they need that money as much as, or do they need as much as somebody that's making uh, 20000 30000 barely surviving? So... That's what's got to be looked at, and I understand it's it's a one-time initiative. It's uh, it's an immediate need, especially heading into this time of year when uh, anybody that's trying to heat their homes or trying to feed their children. Uh, people are making difficult choices. I'm having members calling me uh, that are employed that are making difficult choices, and it's heart-wrenching to listen to it, knowing that in some cases there's not a lot we can do uh, to change things in the foreseeable future we're still borrowing money still not clear exactly where that uh, 200 million dollars is coming from the fall fiscal update uh, due in the coming weeks what do you expect what I expect is, uh, I believe, and again, I don't have any crystal ball, and I'm just observing, I think probably where some of that money has come from, and that's what I guess comes looking at, they're not sure it's going to be here next year, the year after, because a one-time payment versus uh, something that's going to happen year over year, I'm thinking some of it, like we've seen what the oil prices have been for the last six months, much above what the provincial budget projected, uh, and what oil experts even projected, so I'm assuming there's additional revenue from that and some of the money that's been infused from the federal level level has went into our local economy. So I'm hoping, I'm, I'm assuming that's where some of that, that money is coming from to be able to assist those in our problems that need that assistance. So I guess the fall update will tell us that because I think it was an int at that yesterday uh, that there's some additional revenue from some sources that is above what was expected. And finally, uh, Jerry, uh, any final thoughts leading into the long holiday weekend or otherwise? In a couple of areas. First of all, to people on the southwest coast right now, uh, I'm I'm sure many are, are thankful that there wasn't a greater loss than was experienced there, but I can only imagine what they're going through. So the people that are here, we're especially thinking of them. Uh, to every worker out there, uh, I want to wish them and their families a happy Thanksgiving. And there's many members that we represent, as do other unions, that will not get to spend Thanksgiving uh, with their families. They're going to be working in our emergency departments and on our ambulances and our land. Uh, and our correction facilities on our ferries across the province. So I want to thank them for what they do, Linda, every day, and especially on long weekends when some of us get together with family, they don't get to do that, and that, that happens repeatedly. But just a happy Thanksgiving to them and a happy Thanksgiving to everyone in your listening audience. It's, it's challenging times, but uh, take what we can from this weekend and try to get some downtime and enjoy it with your families. And uh, find those things in life to be thankful for. Um, It may be harder to see on some days than others, but uh, it is a time for reflection and and spending time with family and uh, and having uh, hopefully a a little feed for yourself. So, uh, uh, Jerry Earl, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. 
Lanier, really appreciate the opportunity to spend this hour with you and your listening audience and to you and those at VOCM and everybody listening. Like I said, happy Thanksgiving and just try to take some time for yourself and reflect on those things that we are thankful for. All the best to you. Thanks. Uh, And we'll be back on Tuesday. Of course, this is the long holiday weekend. A happy Thanksgiving to you all. Uh, Do stay safe. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone.